In this podcast, I will offer an introduction to sub and transnational governance. Then I will artificially separate and introduce first informal economies and then introduce clans, clan-like entities, and entities that brand themselves as clans. So first, the introductions. Of all the international relations theories, it has been argued by few that the least realistic theory is realism. There is a fiction that still binds some governments that a federal government has a monopoly of violence within its borders and over its citizens and imposes laws over its commerce. But if we are to operate in the great power competition game, we don't have the luxury of this delusion. There's the world how we wish it was, and there's the world how it is. The world how many at least wish it were is called sometimes the contract society. Contract society in theory is when a foundational narrative without precedence in nature binds many people, even millions of strangers, into a social contract. One of the key elements of a contract society is that each person is equal as an individual in front of the law. Now we're going to discuss two elements of the information environment. In this podcast, I will artificially separate two different phenomenon, that is, of informal economies and clans. But in plenary and in seminar discussion, my opinion is that looking at the extreme differences and sometimes similarities between clan and clan-like entities and informal economies, especially the juxtapositions, offer an extra depth to these two phenomena. Our job is basically to look at the differences and maybe similarities between the article you have and the videos. First, let's look to informal economies. This may include what is often called the black market, the gray market, the shadow economy, the underground economy, desperation economy, the economy of improvisation, the ingenuity economy, and the aspiration economy. According to Robert Newworth, half the world's workers are working in the informal economy. So what do I mean by informal economy? Well, according to Newworth, this is what happens in all the unregistered markets and roadside kiosks of the world, but it's not simply haphazard. It is a product of intelligence, resilience, self-organization, and group solidarities, and it follows a number of well-worn, though unwritten, rules. It is off the books in jobs that neither registered nor regulated, getting paid in cash, and most often avoiding income taxes. It includes small vendors, but also internationally traded machinery, mobile phones, computers, trash pickup, recycling, transportation, and even utilities. It exists outside the framework of trade agreements, labor laws, copyright protections, product safety regulations, anti-pollution legislation, and a host of other political, social, and environmental policies. Of note, the border between the shadow and legal economies is blurry. For example, does buying some of your supplies from an unlicensed dealer put you in the shadows, even if you report your profit and pay your taxes? The second phenomenon I want to look at is clans, tribes, tribe-like entities, and entities that sell themselves as clan that exist within and across Westphalian borders 
For those in the Fall Influence Warfare Elective, we focused almost entirely on political tribalism, restorative justice that has been used between states and civil societies, and the general nature of so-called quote-unquote clanism. In this lesson for IWS, we are entering the same discipline, but we are taking a hard left turn from what we studied in November. I want to underline to all students that I am using a very, very, very loose definition of clans and clan-like entities. We are not only going to focus on the Arab tribes and the rich history of honor-bound bloodline, incredibly rich history of the bonds between the faith and states and tribes and clans and families of areas, for example, like Saudi Arabia and the UAE. I encourage every student to learn about the rich and beautiful history of Oman and also of the rich unparalleled statesmanship and genius in the creation and unity of the seven emirates that became the United Arab Emirates. So the following is an overview of what is considered, and this is a simplification for learning purposes, between the state and clan ideal, realizing that both often apply to many populations. So here are some elements of clan society versus contract society. With clan society, you have a focus on honor, shame, and revenge in some places at some times versus the rule of state law. You can have feud or restorative or restoration of relationships according to local customs versus formal courts. You have restorative justice versus punitive justice. You have militarism versus reliance on state security. You have feelings and perceptions versus, quote-unquote, it's just business. You have ever-shifting confederacies versus relatively stagnant states. And then you have a clan-first versus individualistic mindset. A clan-first, I'm referring to bloodline clans, geographic clans, and sometimes fictitious clans. Failing to understand tribal narratives when we assume narratives are more than stories and offer or reflect meaning, purpose, and identity has arguably helped cause the collapse of certain empires and armies. Military leaders have often assumed tribal elders are akin to commanding officers or chief executive officers, but in reality, many clan leaders in many places in the world are first amongst equals, rarely command clan members, except perhaps for certain emergencies, often do not own land, and cannot speak for his clan on many matters, often cannot negotiate land or treaties, and often do not attend army or government-led negotiations, committees, or conferences. The following are some common strategic fallacies that governments have made. Naming a tribal elder in the hopes that he would somehow magically be respected by clansmen because of his government-designated leadership title. Another misstep, assuming whoever shows up to a government negotiation is truly a tribal elder, when in fact that person who shows up may not represent his tribe at all. Sometimes clans purposely send someone without even cultural importance as a deception, and sometimes charlatans or opportunists show up on their own volition. Another misunderstanding or misstep, assuming that a large tribe is somehow a unified society when in fact, sometimes at the super clan level, it may be more akin to many nations without a central leader. Another is comparing clan militia to a military unit when in fact, militiamen may each act, that is militiamen from a recognized legitimate traditional tribe, for example, may each act with staggering individuality and self-interest. 
It may even seem as if it's a platoon of colonels. For those that have studied the Comanche, this is very much the case. Assessing young people as unimportant when in fact some clans in some locations ordain a young adult to be a spiritual, battle, or moral leader. Viewing an area as tribal, tribally waning because of a strong government, and then being surprised at how quickly clans reconfigure and resurrect themselves to drive out outsiders with rare determination and will. Another misstep, thinking that a clan might have a similar concept of land as that of a government. Believing that a person who is a clan expert, talking about experts, let's say, in Washington, D.C., in think tanks, for example, believing that a person who claims to be a clan expert in one area might have any idea about what unifies, strengthens, or drives tribes anywhere else in the world. As the Afghanistan adage goes, if you have seen one village, you have seen one village. If you have seen one tribe, you have seen one tribe. In other words, what is true for one town, one village cluster, regarding tribal structure and strength may prove untrue even for a neighboring area, let alone a different region in the world. Another misstep, believing that another's honor-based clan society defines honor the same as you. This is often a mistake. Honor may mean many different things to many clans and tribes. And finally, a misstep, misunderstanding that some clans view vengeance as not a principle, but a compulsory practice. Many empires and states have attempted to stem insurrection in rural areas only to face an ever-growing tribally-led revolt. If the state has accidentally killed one person from a tribe, that clan federation in some cases, in some areas, and during some periods of history, may feel that vengeance against that state's military, any and all of its soldiers, is obligatory. Perhaps in these cases, states then should attempt open restorative justice in which the guilty are not necessarily punished, but the crime is recognized and atonement is sought. Thank you.